Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. Uh, this is episode 97 being recorded on January 10th, 2021, the second episode of the year for us. And tonight we are covering the top five Luis Buñuel films. Um, Frank, I know that we've had um, a handful of d- different directors kind of on a list that uh, I keep, like in terms of like who we're going to focus on next. I think it's episode, I don't know, two or five or something. We did David Lynch uh, two and a half years ago, where we talked about the top five films of David Lynch. We have not done a director since outside of our Third Man series. So this is only the second time we've actually focused on a specific director um, for top five. I'm sorry, we did Cronenberg. Um, I forgot all about poor David Cronenberg. Uh, We did him last year. Um, But... So we don't do this often, um, but I knew I've always had him on a list because uh, it's somebody that you've always really talked about a lot, uh, getting like reference movies to me throughout the years. Um, we watched Vera Diana last year or two years ago um, yeah, for years the ago. Palm Door episode. Um, and I know I really loved it, but you've had like you've known him since you were young, right? Like a teenager. Yeah. So my initial exposure to Buñuel was through um, uh, Unshan Andalou and uh, Lodge Door, which are movies that he made, um, I guess, in his association with Dali. Like, they're surrealist, really just kind of, like, very abstract, very surreal uh, short films. Um, Unshan Andalou probably being most famous um, for the eyeball slicing scene. Right. Um I mean, I'll admit, like, a lot of that came from just, you know, the Pixies. Like, I think Frank Black was pretty obsessed with uh, Buñuel and especially that movie. Um, So those and then some more of his other, like, surreal stuff, like um, Simon of the Desert I had seen early. Um, And then a couple of the movies that are on this list I saw. um, It wasn't until, like, later in my life where I really, I would argue, kind of fell in love with Buñuel. and really, Vera Deanna, you know, principal among that, like, just kind of was a revelation to me. Because um, I really had just sort of viewed him as a surrealist before then. Um, and not to say that there's not surreal elements in that movie, but it's a much more firm narrative tale. And it really just kind of shows his, like, I don't know, absolute command of, like, the film medium, like, visually. Um, and then I started watching his other movies. I mean, I wouldn't tell you that I'm even close to seeing his whole filmography, but, you know, I've seen a good, like, 12, 13 of his movies. And and you've certainly seen a majority of them, I would figure, um, from, like, basically 60 on, right? When he, like, really kind of, like, hit, hit his stride, it seems, like, in terms of filmmaking and started. Yeah, maybe Robinson Crusoe is the only one I haven't watched yet. Hmm. Um, which I don't know why, because I love that story. So that's it's a weird omission for me, but it's just one of those things like where I've always looked at it and thought like, I think I even have it on DVD and I've looked at it and thought like, yeah, I should watch this. And I just never have. So, um, but yeah, there's like visually, I just think he's, um, he's an amazing combination of innovation and classicism. Um, and I think that it really makes all of his movies pretty eminently watchable like even when they are kind of like weird i guess or out there um and we'll talk about that a couple times 
on this uh this list but um it's strange so like every every sunday i go to my parents house for dinner and at dinner one of the topics of conversation is what's the podcast for this week Mm um my mom is a very avid movie watcher um i would say she probably watches as many movies a week as i do Hmm. um her stuff is mostly through uh, TCM, um, AMC. Like she's watching a lot of, you know, like forties and fifties classic movies. Um, so we, she asked me tonight and I told her, you know, it was top five Who Knew Well movies. Um, and she thinks she may have seen one of his movies, but she doesn't know for sure if she had, and she really didn't know who he was. So she think it's kind of a, um, I think it's kind of an interesting, you know, interesting topic to talk about with a guy that maybe for a certain generation isn't as known. Um, but I think the people that are into whatever you want to call it, like art house films, know Booney well, but I think, right. that, you know, in general, people are probably pretty unfamiliar with him. So it's, it's, it's going to be nice to talk about him and kind of. Yeah, and I think th- I think you're going to see that in the Rotten Tomatoes scores, um, like the audience scores um, are very high. And I think it's because the only people that are watching these movies are people that are already really intensely into film. Like, uh, you know, I'll put that in kind of quotation marks, um, like, you know, or like you said, art house film or people that really study the form um so you're going to see that those are like very high um uh, the audience scores which i don't think that's representative necessarily of a general casual audience um probably uh but you're right i from my research it's like if you if you know what criterion is or like you watch movies on criterion or have criterion dvds it's like you know who buñuel is um you know, and if you don't, then you probably don't know who he is, like, is, is what it seems to me anyway. Um, it's like there's um, there's a quote about the Velvet Underground from the early 90s where it was like, you know, they sold like 100 albums, but every one of those albums went into the hands of somebody that went on to form a band. And <laughs> I think that Buñuel is one of those guys that's kind of similar to that, where it's like, like, if you love film, you know him, I guess, and mm-hmm. somebody like there was some way that you discovered him or something. Right. Um, Criterion this month, I think it may have already come out. It's either it has come out or it's coming out in the next few weeks. Um, is putting out a, I think a five disc collection of like remasterings of his um, some of his works, and I don't know what's on that, but um, one of the reasons why we did this this month was hoping that you know maybe like that name recognition and people sort of like having him in the public eye would um, bring some attention to like his works and, you know, get people to listen to the podcast for that reason. So, right. Yeah. But I mean, if you're listening to this, if you're a regular listener and you've not watched any Buñuel, um, after the podcast, after we talk about the five, like I can give a couple other recommendations of things that I think you should watch, um, but definitely all five on this list are, yeah. you know, are worth watching. Yeah. Um, One of the things I find really interesting about this guy is that, like, so he was born in 1900. Yep. So by the time he really 
not that people didn't know who he was, but he, you know, was working with Dolly like early in his career um, on some stuff. And it's like, he makes movies and then he does a lot of work. Like, you know, I mean, he's, even though he's Spanish, like, um, you know, he's a citizen of the world. Like he's been everywhere and kind of done everything. Like um, he was an expat in what Mexico for a while, United States that he lived for a while. Um, you know, France, he lived for France, a little while, yeah. you know, and uh, but it's like it's really not until he's in his 60s that he starts making movies that start really getting recognized on a wide level. Um, right, it's weird. It's like he almost had lived an entire life and then all of a sudden he's like, well, and he makes these movies that are so like, I don't know, they have such like a universality to them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the thing that he really just needed to live before he could right. put all that into film or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I find it amazing that it's like basically the guy starts like what is considered the the main part of his filmmaking career after 60. Um, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Everything on here comes after 1961, like, you know, 61 on like um, and it's just amazing to me that like he produces that much in, uh, you know, what, 17, 18 years like. <clears throat> um it's 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 a pretty amazing run which we've talked about before i like the idea of runs some um but it's a pretty amazing run um i guess i guess obscure object is his last movie right yeah 77 yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah um but i think that's amazing about him um we'll probably talk about a little bit more about him because we're not i'm not the criticism is just is not there um like not really like the useful criticism i either try to do useful or funny criticism it's not there this time um the useful criticism um there are some criticisms of him and some of his filmmaking which i'll bring up throughout as we're talking about these different movies but i think we're going to do things just a little differently where it's like um we're not going to necessarily do criticism but we're going to kind of like try to go a little bit deeper into the movies and kind of connect them to um you know themes maybe a little bit more um this time and talk about those kind of things or i'll bring up some things about his biography but i certainly have questions for frank to ask him that we haven't talked about yet off air um so uh just uh so everybody knows the schedule before we get started with the top five is uh next week we'll be taking our monthly break uh we will be back in two weeks with our second ever versus episode where we're going to talk about annihilation and uh what's the name frank starfish yes um uh where we kind of take two movies that have some similarities and go ahead and uh, discuss both those movies and compare them um and contrast them i suppose and then um the end of the month we will be doing uh the top five horror films of 1990 and starting uh all the years of the 90s uh one each month for the rest of the year um yeah, so that's the rest of the month uh, in terms of our schedule. As always, um, if you have any suggestions for us, you can contact us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, or our email, twoguys5movies at gmail.com. All right, so number five on your list, Frank, is uh, The Phantom of Liberty from 1974. Uh, it stars uh, Jean-Claude Brielli, uh, Monica Vitti, um, Milena, Mil- Milana, um Vukovic and it has an 86% from critics and a 91% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes you want to kind of just explain a little bit about this movie and um why you chose to be on the list I don't really know what to explain Hmm. um aside from the fact that it's a 
it's a series of loosely connected narrative vignettes um, that are mostly told in like a, I would call it a surreal, surrealist like standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, This is really like the most surreal movie on this list that doesn't, I mean, there's some absurdism later on, but this one is the one that's like really surreal. it opens with one of my favorite, I think, openings in any of his movies, um, referencing um, uh, Gustavo Adolfo Becker poetry, and then cutting to a filmic, well, at a shot of um, the Goya uh, painting, uh, Madrid 1917 or whatever it's called, the one with the guys lined up against the... Um, the firing squad, um, pretty famous uh, Francisco Goya painting, and then sort of like moves into an almost um, like reenactment of that, like an off-camera reenactment, like where you hear things happening, but you're not seeing it. And then it just kind of moves between a bunch of different um, scenes. There's a a pretty long scene that is implied, well, not even pretty, I shouldn't say pretty long, like the first like lengthy like vignette is um, implied to be this man, like like an implied like pedophilia or like molestation scenario um, where a guy is showing ostensibly naughty pictures to these two young girls in a park um, who are there with their nanny. And it turns out that those pictures are French architecture. Um, right. And their parents are like horrified by well, horrified and titillated by the idea of like this different French architecture, um, things like that. Like, I don't per- like watching enough, you know, whatever Godard and Truffaut and stuff from the time period. Like, I know a little bit about French culture at the time, but I don't know nearly enough to like have any idea what the fuck, like, necessarily that's about. Well, I think I just that one specific example, I think my guess is it's a little bit more universal than that um, in the sense that I think he's questioning what is obscene. Yeah, but I think there's something very specifically Could be, yeah. referential in the buildings that they're showing. Because mm. it's a mix of like like true classicism and neoclassicism mm-hmm. in those buildings. Like I, I get the impression that some of that stuff is legitimately older buildings that exist in like Paris and whatever Mm -hmm. um like around that area and then some of it is stuff that's like newer that's designed in that style so maybe there's some I mean Buñuel is all about kind of like question the reverence of the past and sort of has a like a critical eye towards I guess maybe that element of like French nationalism Mm -hmm. like and this is again this is the thing is like this is like one how long is this segment 15 minutes long maybe and it's like you you watch it and it's beautiful to look at like especially Mm -hmm. the stuff I love the way the Buñuel films interiors and in the next movie, we'll talk about this a lot more because I think that, like, mm-hmm. 
it's amazing how he films interiors with a combination of just like natural light. But it's like the stuff in the park is just gorgeous in in that in that scene setting it up, and it's like you're watching it, and it makes you uncomfortable, you know, with this, you know, the archetypical almost like creepy creepy old man in the trench coat with like the thin mustache and you know hey girls let me let me show you something i want i want you to come over here and look at something with me um and then when you see what it is it's just kind of weird um yeah but i right and it's like again we could talk about this i think even this is the one 15 minute segment i think we could talk about it for a while and this i think is kind of to me like the genius of this movie um is that each of these vignettes as you said kind of packs its own little coding and messages and these kind of things and kind of almost like morals or philosophy like packed into each other because there's so many other things in this in the sense of like the parents hypocrisy um surrounding it like you know it's disgusting in front of the children but it's titillating as soon as they right. leave the room um and it's like there's a lot going on that's packed in each of these segments i think um if you really sit down and start delving into them and yeah so the next segment is at a i guess it's the next segment like a mountain hotel um where a young man has arrived with his elderly his elderly aunt um with the intention that he wants to pursue an incestuous relationship with her um, and when he undresses her, she has the body of a, I don't know, like a 20 something. Yeah. Like she's, she's an older woman, but then her body is, um, like basically this flawless, whatever, like young maid body. Um, and she declines like letting him like consummate the relation. I, I don't know. Right. It's a weird movie and there's a lot <laughs> of weird things that happen in it. Yes, and it's uh, probably the most famous scene in this movie. And again, I think who knew I was one of those guys where, like, I had seen Unshan Andalou and I had seen some parts of Lodge Door at a pretty pretty young age. Um, the one of the shots they always showed in like those um, Time Magazine film books mm-hmm. from the library was in this movie with like the the bourgeoisie sitting around the dinner table on the toilets mm-hmm. like talking about excrement and then basically like eating and shitting at the same time um so yeah so that's this movie i mean i don't even know i don't i feel like i'm not going to do it justice i don't like i don't even know what to talk about it's it's one right. of these it's weird because I, I feel, and you, you enjoyed watching this movie, right? I did. I When I put this on the list, I thought this is the one he's going to hate. Huh. Like, this is a movie that he's not going to be able to stand because. Right, you have two just, films that kind of, bo- like, that delve into surrealism and absurdism on here. And I, I, I enjoyed this one out of the two. Which is weird because I feel like the other one is much less surreal and just much more absurd. Like I feel yeah. like there still is a narrative thread in that movie, and we'll right. we'll get to that movie. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, sure. Um, whereas there's no real narrative thread here; it's just mostly. Yeah, I, I get, I get you right. Traditionally, it's like these are almost like short stories. They're absurd. They don't 
like I, I get why you would think um, I wouldn't like this, but I can't I, I can't tell you why. Like I, I, I liked the setup of like one character kind of from each story moving into their own story. Um, but I actually liked watching it and trying to get the meaning out of it um, where I think I had a much harder time with the other movie. Um, of, of sitting down and trying to do that, like, because there was a narrative. I think by kind of slicing it up like he does here, it actually makes me able to sit there and process those segments one at a time and kind of like right. take things out of it. Um, because, and I think it like raises all these like fascinating questions, like, you know, like the, the scene you were talking about, like with the ant, like, you know, like, why does she have the body of a 20 year old? Is this like, is that how he views her because he's so like infatuated with her? Is that how she sees herself? Like, you know, does she, does she just keep it fit? Like, I mean, like what, what is the, what's really going on there? You know? Um, See, I don't think she, I mean, just answer whatever. I don't think yeah. she's herself like that. And I understand that what it, it's, it's a trick of the, the filmmaking process because they have her cover her face while he's doing that to her. Because it's obviously it's a different actor, sure. you know, 60-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the thing is that she doesn't see herself like that. Like, I think, anyway, I think that is the way that he views her. Yes, I, I do too. Um, right. But it's like, and then you kind of stop there, but there's so many other things with, like, what the, um, what are they, clergy, I guess, like the monks, yeah. um, like, you know, that are um, that are in the room, and then there's stuff with a dominatrix, and like, you know, like, right. like there's so much that even in that scene, and that kind of gets into, um, I mean, one of the things you'll see a lot in all these movies, to one degree or another, is his distaste for the church. Um, yes. It is, it is certainly a theme um, of his, like, he, and, and honestly, this movie, I think, contains, like, most of his themes, um, because it is kind of like these short story vignettes, um, you know, but I mean, Buñuel is a guy that, like, focuses on sexual pathology um, in all of his films in, in a variety of different ways. There's tons of like taboos that get broken, um, in his movies all the time, like sexual taboos, um, they get raised. I mean, just in that one there, it's like, you have like BDSM, you have incest, um, you know, right. and then you have the absurdity of religious life mixed in, you know, with that. Um, but he is, and this is something we'll talk about a bit later, but, um, he's certainly, has something with um machismo like he's like, like in terms of like being like kind of like anti-machismo among men um i think understanding but anti um he, and he has like i think a very positive view of women and female sexuality yet he also understands how women's sexuality can um i think the phrase i saw somewhere was uh disrupt um you know men's culture um and he has like blurring a fantasy and reality all the time in a lot of his movies. So it's like this movie encapsulates all of those themes in one. And I think it's it's a good one to kind of like try to talk about here as the first one because it kind of sets the stage for I think a yeah. lot of things that come up like later um, throughout his movies. Um, so yeah, I really like this. I mean, you have to really, I think, like. 
it's like you have to want to be like a little bit of a detective i think and like think about like what's going oh, yeah. on in in this movie but um if you if that's your thing kind of of like you know almost like a what absurdist like paintings and stuff like that like to some degree like um yeah but yeah. again it's interesting because like i feel the same way about most most surreal movies that we talk about on the podcast mm-hmm. and movies that like i've made you watch in the past right that you've not been like much of a fan of um i feel like that's true for all of them and Again, I think a lot of it here. So I think it's interesting what you said about female sexuality. So if you ask me, because, and we talked about this prior to starting the podcast tonight, I have done almost no reading in my entire life on Luis Buñuel from a sociological or political or ideological perspective. Like I've read almost nothing he's written. Right. I don't know anything about the dude, honestly, yeah. aside from the fact that I just enjoy his movies. So if I had to gauge his feelings towards women, mm-hmm. I would tell you that I would think that he's very fond of women and very appreciative of women. Like he respects women, mm-hmm. but that he has very little use for modern feminism and like the changing social mores, mores in culture towards like how women were viewed in women's positions of power. Like, I think he's, like, still somewhat of a traditionalist in the respect of, you know. I can see why you would think that, and I think he's, I don't think you're wrong. I think he's just a bit beyond what you're saying. Like, I think he's a little bit more, he's certainly just a sex-positive person. He is. Um, And I think we'll talk about that more probably in the next movie, honestly. Um, Because uh, I really don't, I want to get your reading on that movie a little bit, but... um. But yeah, so let's just get this out of the way. We'll do, let's do a little guessing game before we move with this next movie. Is okay. So from what you've seen of Buñuel as a filmmaker, so all the upheaval in Spain, um, you know, during his life um, in sure. the '30s, what, where does he fall? He was very anti-Franco. Right. Right. I mean, he's incredibly anti-establishment anyway. Right. And you can see in his movies about how he he's he's a very classic for as kind of vulgar, and I'm putting that in air quotes as he can be sometimes in the way he films things, he's mm-hmm. a very genteel and classy individual, I think. Right. So he's got yeah. a he's got a really subtly snide way of pointing out the inadequacy of the ruling class, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And so I would just automatically assume that in most, yeah. especially from like a fascist point of view, that yeah. he would be like anti-fascist. Sure. Right. right. It's, it's like his filmmaking is subversive and subversive would naturally lead you to thinking that he's a socialist, which in his early life he was. Um, he was he was most definitely he was a member of the Socialist Party in Spain. Um, he did work with the socialists. He did pro, you know some propaganda documentary type stuff for him. Um, that is actually what ends up causing the split between him and Dolly, um, Salvador Dolly. Um, he was friends with both Dolly and Federico Garcia Lorca, Lorca uh-huh, um, okay. er, early in their life. Um, it was like the three of them were very close. Um, 
when Dolly goes kind of and works for the fascists, um, Dolly actually stops being friends with, it seems, Buñuel, um, like because of like his work with, um, uh, so yeah, so he's definitely, um, later in life, he says he was never a socialist, um, and he seems to be a bit more politically moderate, but still has kind of some socialist leanings, but it, you're right, he's definitely much more later in his life in the films that we're watching, much more anti-establishment, anti-fascism, um, anti-church than he is, like, necessarily, um, you know, right. Uh, promoting socialist concepts or anything like that. I mean, Although, I, I, we certainly see that he's sympathetic towards socialists. I'll say that. Like sometimes, I mean, but I sometimes. also think he sees some hypocrisy in that as well. He does. Well, he, I think he sees hypocrisy in everything. Um, like there's I just think no, he's a humanist in a lot of ways. Very I, much. What I say when I say simply sympathies the socialists, I think it's actually sympathies towards the way socialists are presented by the establishment. Like, yeah. I think you see that in his movies is what I probably really should be more clear in saying is what I what I see. Um, I mean, even the whole idea of Phantom of Liberty is uh, kind of like a riff off of um, uh, Marx. Um, uh, the first line of the Communist Manifesto and stuff like that. I mean, so um, that he changes like to kind of like poke at the establishment. Um, so yeah, this is this is one of the two surrealist movies we're talking about. I really like this one. I it's, it's out of the two. I like this one better. Um, Frank, uh, we'll go ahead and talk about the second one like in a, here here shortly. But um, uh, do you want to move on to the fourth movie? Then? Yeah, let so, me ask so, you a question though, just because sure. I'm curious. Yeah. What's your favorite um, vignette in this movie? Um, favorite part? I think honestly, I think it's the one with the doctor. Um, okay. I I really like that there was like a hum, there was a human quality to it. Um so so what so what it is is um it, it really does like act like almost a sketch comedy um type thing where it's like a guy uh, the doctor doesn't want to tell the guy that he's dying basically um that he has like a fatal disease. Um the doctor's trying like every which way to um to get out of like you know saying the truth and not be he's not being blunt about the entire thing um i thought that had a very human quality to it um and spoke to some things about like the way that people communicate um you know and kind of like what you're saying like this kind of like genteel nature about things sometimes um so i really like that one that that's the one that if i'm looking at as the comedy made me laugh the most um i really like the opening that you talked about oh yeah that that and leading into the thing with the um invading the crypt of uh right. the king and the queen or whatever yeah yeah yeah. the um, statue come to life and yeah mm -hmm. that part's pretty fun um i like the one with the, the weird ass postcard um like you know like i i like i i mean i liked most of these to one degree or another um probably the police stuff i like the least but even that's prophetic at times like in some of the stuff there like I, I i like the one segment of the police stuff with um the missing girl i think in terms right, of yes individual yeah. segments i think yeah. it's probably my favorite in the whole movie mm. is like that absurdist you know yeah 
yeah. the girl is there, but no one, everyone can see her and everyone interacts with her, but no one admits that she's right, right, right. Yeah, I was actually thinking more of the other police sequence, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Like, but um, like I said, even some of that stuff, it's like he's kind of like seeing like a little bit ahead. He does that a bunch of times with police stuff, like um, uh, in a couple different ways, but um. He does it in discreet charm too, but um, yeah, I don't think he's much of a fan of uh, police officers. No, I don't either. Um, or authority figures in general. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. So number four on your list is Belle de Jour, um, from 1968. It stars Catherine Deneuve, uh, Jean Sorel, uh, Michel um, Piccolo, and Macha Morel. Uh, it has a 95% from audiences and an 86%, sorry, 95% from critics and 86% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about this one, which has a more uh, firm narrative to it, I think, um, for you to describe and um, and why you like it so much. Um, so the story follows the titular Belle du Jour, uh, played by Deneau, um, who plays uh, Severine. Um, the young kind of submissive wife of a doctor who harbors these dark and really kind of sexually violent uh, sadomasochistic fantasies of um, getting tied up and whipped and um, she's sort of cold towards her husband um, but she has these fantasies inside her so um, a conversation with a uh, a couple that they're friends with where she's told that um, this woman that she knows has been acting as a prostitute basically um, on the side kind of piques her interest. So she goes and investigates this world of like um, sort of like bourgeois prostitution uh, chamber. I don't know, comfort ladies or whatever you would call it like in the Asian term, but Initially sort of repulsed and scared by it, she then gives into it and becomes a prostitute, um, being named Belle du Jour because she's like kind of the afternoon, I guess, appetizer for these men. Um, she's not very good at it at first, but then she falls in with a guy who's a, was he a gangster, I guess, like yeah. a local hood, mm -hmm. um, who becomes infatuated with her. Um, this eventually causes her husband to get shot and crippled. Um, and she realizes at that point, like when she can't do anything with her husband that she loves him. I don't know. It's, um, it's a pretty interesting look at like what you said before, female sexuality. Um, definitely uh, what's acceptable in a like sexually acceptable in society. Um, and I think it's a pretty sex positive look at like women having agency over their own bodies like being able to do what they want with themselves and not necessarily being forced into i don't know like societally condoned roles of like mother or wife or whatever you want to look at um it's an interesting counterpiece to repulsion i think to watch this movie um especially because it's implied early on that one of the reasons why she has some confusion over her relationship with sex is because she was possibly molested by what do you think that is it's like an uncle or something 
early yeah, on. I believe so, yeah. Or a family friend. Something like that, yeah. Um, which is really similar to the take on her character in Repulsion, um, except that uh, Severine doesn't become a murderer necessarily. Um, it's sort of the crux of violence. Um, a really, like, human... It's a really complex performance, I think, by Deneau. Um where she sort of skirts between almost like robotic frigidity, which to me is like one of the states of being of Catherine Deneau, and the really warm, um, like human tenderness to her. I don't know how else to say that. Um, beautifully shot in terms of the interiors of this movie. Um, like there's a couple of scenes where Buñuel, uh, there's a the ski resort, I guess, mm-hmm. in particular, um, just in the way that like he films French architecture in this, which again is I wonder. So this is like ten years before um, Phantom of Liberty, right? Belle de Jour is in sixty six or sixty. Uh, Belle de Jour is. Uh... It depends on is 67, 67, 68. Like, um, so seven years before Phantom of Liberty. Um, I think he really has a love for like modern French buildings and architecture, like the way he films them and mm-hmm. the way he shoots like these, um, like waiting chambers and boudoirs or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, well, interesting. I mean, a piece of just like note of his trivia. The first thing that he, before he eventually ended up in philosophy um, at university, uh, the first thing that he studied was industrial engineering. <laughs> so that might account for his love of, you know, like buildings and monuments and, you know, like that kind of stuff, infrastructure and those kind of things. Um, I think it's I think it's an interesting question too about the difference between like physical love and romantic love. Mm-hmm. And this is another thing that's kind of explored. I think to greater well, not not maybe to greater extent. I think to me in a more satisfying way in a movie we're going to talk about shortly. Right. Um, but it's definitely something that Boonwell looks at in the sense of like, so, okay. So we were talking about his view of women. Mm-hmm. I think that Boonwell thinks that women can easily separate the idea of romantic love and physical love from each other and can experience both without conflating them for one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that Buñuel feels that men cannot do that right? until they've experienced a physical love. And then I think that Buñuel has a very um, callous, not callous, but negative look towards men at that point where he feels that like men are very quick to throw away a woman once they've gotten their fill of them in terms of like physical romance or like they find them to be disposable like it's the it's the act of the physicality 
that like the men crave and they conflate that for like actual like love or romance or whatever which is why i think that the men that she meets when she's you know like belle du jour when she's in the brothel mm-hmm. um because there's no need to have the illusion of romance mm-hmm. because it's obviously like a very specific business arrangement that they actually have more genuine affection for her than the people she knows like in her real life. Not to say that her husband doesn't love her, but I think her husband views her as a object to be conquered. Yeah, exactly. Or not even to be conquered, but be to be displayed or to be proud of. Mm-hmm. Like she's obviously, you know, yeah, because he's actually very respectful. Like he's frustrated. Like he's you right. can tell, but he's also very respectful of her you know, unwillingness to consummate their relationship. I mean, sure. It's funny because in a lot of ways, it's very similar to how Judge Reinhold is portrayed in Zandali. Mm. Except he doesn't do a good job of it all, and that movie's terrible. But I right. mean, it's kind of a similar idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if Belle de Jour was influenced by Therese Rakim too. That'd be interesting. Um, um, okay, but just I I think that Denoe does a really good job of like kind of moving between that almost like stoic, icy, non-sexual kind of like a statue almost, and being like opening up and being like a truly sexual being. And I think it's really interesting that Buñuel who obviously has some, I don't know, fixation is the right word, but some knowledge of um, like BDSM and sadomasochism, Mm -hmm. um, probably honestly through like Marquis de Sade or whatever. Um, And I think that Severine is the name of a character in one of de Sade's books, Mm. maybe. I'd have to look at that. Uh, that, It sounded familiar like when I was watching it this time, and I think that's why. I know that in the movie Venus and Furs, I'm pretty sure that the main female character is Severine as well, um, which is a BDSM, whatever, like milestone book from around this around the same time. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's a beautiful movie. I think it's a complex movie. I think it's got some sadness to it, but I also think it has like a measure of. Um, I don't know, maybe hope or, and then let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the movie actually ever even happened? Who knows? Who who knows? Who knows? Screaming it at the end, like that the entire thing is maybe some kind of like reverie almost of hers. Like, like that she's just sitting there with her husband who's actually perfectly okay and fine. And like, actually the entire thing is a dream. Like, yeah, our, like our fa- another a more prolonged fantasy, right? Because the movie opens in fantasy with right. her in the carriage with the sure. husband, and then getting whipped by like the right, yeah, you know, grimy based like mm-hmm. stable boys right. or stable and, men, or and 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 does and and is the local thug or hood just another extension of the grimy, you know, carriageman? Like you know. I, possibly like in right, this like, one, this be, is 
this is one of the things I had to ask you actually um, is that I don't know how to take this movie because I think you could take it in a number of different ways um, because on the surface it does seem even if it is sex positive it seems like it could be almost like a morality play like a judgment of her in some ways um, I think you could take somebody could take that reading potentially um, that she basically goes out sins and then the the innocent in this case her husband suffers the consequences for it um so i think you could take that reading from it i what i know of him i don't believe that's the reading um i i, I kind of dismiss that reading but it's like um so like i think there's the dream option the only other thought i had is like how do you make this like kind of like because he does this in Vera Diana a little bit too, I think, like, you know, where it's like, yes, he's, I think, like, to some degree, like a first wave feminist, maybe. Um, and he's very sex positive, but I I think he'll still take his female character sometimes and give them a trait that is unappealing and put them through the grinder with it. Um, uh, which I think he definitely does with Vera Diana, but um, I wonder if he's doing the same thing here where it's like it's almost like if she found a way to reconcile her fantasies in the real world if that were acceptable if that were allowed to be discussed in proper society to be to find ways and avenues to have an outlet for that in proper society and not shoved away in the upscale brothel I wonder, um, I wonder if, I want, it, it made me wonder if the point to some degree was, is if culture, if society didn't enforce these arbitrary rules on what somebody's kinks, if, or and allowed them to get their kinks and their fantasies and find positive ways and avenues to get those things out, disaster wouldn't happen. That it's actually the hiding of those things. That oh, causes, yeah, I think that's That causes the the drama you know um of life right. in a lot of ways and causes the devastation and the pain and the hurt it's an interesting reading i mean i up until watching it this time i would have always argued that everything was real and that the ending is just her alternating what her fantasy is like now that she's lived Basically, right. like lived her fantasies out in real life and had to suffer these terrible consequences for him. Then now her fantasies just entail the mundane and of being like a good wife with a healthy husband. But then watching it this time, I was thinking, like, you know, what if this whole thing is just this woman, like you just said, like she's just getting, she's getting it all out through like fantasy. Right. It's like, like she's, she's pro- almost like she's processing. Right. She's basically like filling these empty bits of herself of being like a good wife and a um like a model woman, you know, like this upstanding mm-hmm. wealthy because they're obviously like a wealthy couple. Right. Um she's getting it out through like fantasy, and those fantasies are triggered by these small things that she hears about other people that she may or may not have like known in her life right like Hassan is a guy that you know in his really like kind of 
Lothario, like dark Lothario, like grimy way, like makes her feel, you know, like she could do some bad things. And then hearing about the woman that they're friends with, I can't remember her name, that um became a prostitute, like it makes her think like, oh, well, what if I went and did that? And then I could like live out these fantasies. Um, and to the point where when she's fantasizing about the sex, it's almost like what we talk about with um, what's his name, like Don Coscarelli in uh, um, the Phantasm series, as to whether or not like those are actually happening. Mm-hmm. Like it's just kind of like goofy, like you know, a lot of it's just like we're rolling around on the bed or we're, you know, like even her fantasies, the um, what is he, the archivist or whatever, the librarian dude. Mm-hmm. It's like his BDSM fantasies that she that she encounters are just like they're just weird, I guess, you know. Like he just wants to be yelled at and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into that. Yeah, but, I I mean there's also that weird scene with um the Japanese um Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a caller, I guess, like the 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 John, John um right. who has the uh has the box that he like shows that you never get this the viewer never gets to see that it's like you know what one woman's disgusted by it right like right and i think what he shows the belle du jour right and she's almost kind of like just nonplussed by it or kind of yeah um and i think that's a really just interesting kind of MacGuffin type thing um that he throws in there but the idea that it's like it's something obviously that they're seeing and there's different reactions to it and it closed and, and you know and you never get to see it there has so to be my, some kind of correlation between that between that and the movie itself i think so my question about that though and there's a scene in the next movie we're going to talk about that also involves asian sex tourists i would call them and i'm wondering if there was some possible urban legend or generally recognized like stereotype or something about Japanese or Asian men at the time that maybe he was in some way referencing that we wouldn't understand because we're not, you know, maybe yeah. Frenchmen from the 1960s. You know what I mean? Sure. So to you, like I, I think I think in a modern sense your reading is interesting. I think it's almost like, you know, the the case in Pulp Fiction, kind of. Right. It's whatever you want to be in there is what's in there. Yeah. Um, But I also wonder, again, like, it's not a reference that we just don't get because... Well, right, and I also... But I... Right, and it's like, there's that aspect of it. It's like, I I wonder if it's a statement on, like, imagination, possibly, almost. Like, you know, like... It's like, this whole thing's about fantasies, right? And what fantasies people keep in their head. It's like it's almost i wonder if it's like this little joke um we talked about psycho one time i'm positive on the podcast before but you've heard this a bunch of times where it's like younger students years ago watching psycho in a classroom had a really bad reaction to the shower scene because they couldn't see the knife going into her body in the janice lee's body because they're so conditioned now to actually see it it was like they had to imagine what it was like and it caused the worst reaction and it's like i wonder if the joke here is 
um, in some ways is like, if you have to imagine what's in the box, your imagination is oh, like far worse, far worse. Right. And I, wonder I assumed if, it was like Benoit balls or something, honestly, <laughs> when I was imagining it. <laughs> That's funny. And I mean, it, and, and I, a Zeke. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, again, there's like so much that's interesting in this movie and um, just like the last one. But this is actually like a firm narrative that plays itself out. But there's still all these little things that like you yeah. have multiple interpretation, multiple meanings and talking about this now it made me realize like almost like how i don't think we're off the rails whatsoever i think we're just talking about the complexities of this specific guy and his films in his mind but it's very much reminded me of like what i think both of us might have feared of talking when we consider talking about twin peaks the return yeah and it's like and i think it's interesting now that we've dealt with um because i forgot about cronenberg we've now dealt with three guys that are all about dreams to some degree. Right. Like, you know, um, like, which I don't know what that says, but it's, I think it's interesting. It's like, there's this like dreamlike quality to like so much of Buñuel's work, it seems. Um, certainly with the surreal and sort of stuff, but even something like this, um, there's this idea of like a, a dreaminess to it. Um, and you could have multiple takes and interpretations. Um, I don't think that changes in any of the rest of these movies, except for maybe the first one. There's there's multiple ways you can read things. But um, um, but yeah, I mean, I think he brings up complex questions in this movie. I don't know if I have the answers or you have the answers or if anybody really does. But I mean, it's like I think there's a lot of things to think about, like it's just in terms of, um, the, you know, what it is to be a, a woman in terms of like their sexual nature, how society should view that, like what it is, it is to be a male, because we can talk about the masculinity in this movie a hell of a lot more um, as well, too. Right. Like, um, so I do want to bring it up here, I think, as a way to maybe uh, preface something that's going to come later. But what's your take on him in general is like, I called him a first wave feminist kind of just to acknowledge like I don't think he's a second wave feminist like from the 70s or anything like that I agree with you like I think he's like kind of like a first wave feminist who is like you know thinks everybody has sexual hang-ups um is is how I would probably classify him after kind of talking about it with you but it's like do you think he's a feminist like do you think that he's like is someone who has an intense understanding of kind of like the I'll just say the grossness of men at times um do you think he's just someone who understands the grossness of human nature like or is it like a little bit of everything um i think he's definitely a guy who has lived long enough to realize that maybe too much too much is made of things that possibly aren't that important or that aren't like here, he's, you said it like in, in the opening, like he's in his 60s making most of these movies. Like he's already experienced so much in his life and he's seen like a lot of things. You know, he's seen World right. War II, he's seen the fascist revolution in Spain, which he lived through. You know, he's seen um, a lot of his movies like in this time period are sort of influenced by the, um, 
like what was happening in France, you know, with, with um, their colonialism kind of like imploding on itself and uh, um, sort of like the, you know, the revolution in Algiers and there's like insurgents and stuff. And it's like, man, like who cares who you're having sex with, I guess. You know right. what I mean? Right. Like who cares like what yeah. you're. And what, I don't think he looks at any of, yeah, right. yeah, I don't think he look. I I think the only thing that he really looks down upon is the idea that men think they can own women, mm-hmm. because that definitely is the portrayal. The only he he portrays relationships that are equal in a good light in some mm-hmm. ways, or at least mm-hmm. not in a critical light where. Right. Both parties enter into it like open eyed and, you know, whatever. But he really has like a lot of, I think, condemnation for the idea of like men thinking they can buy women. And. But the women, the woman is allowed to choose that. Right. If she wants. But the idea that it's like almost. I, yeah. I, does it get to the idea of privilege, I guess? Like, you know, like... Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, because I think that he's very anti, anti-ruling anti class. Like, he mm-hmm. views, like, the especially the French bourgeoisie, I think he views as corrupt and, like, ultimately um, detestable in a lot of ways. But it's, like, it's, like, banal evil, maybe, if that makes sense. Right. Like, they're not like truly evil people they're just the most boring kind of evil which is wealthy and privileged yeah and they utilize that privilege against people who are like you know whatever lower class or not whatever like poor and i think that he sides a lot with those people that are poor but he also, I don't know. He's, he's and so- see, and and see, you said that. And I think that's where, like, I see still a lot of times, even at this age, there's some socialist sympathies there. Like at times, still, like. But then he he also has this idea that like those people can be corrupted in some ways by that offer of material wealth or sure, whatever. Sure. Where that's they true. can be just that's as true. bad as right. Yeah, I agree. I their mean, masters. Yeah. Now, Let's talk about the next movie because we're already kind of talking about the next movie anyway. We we are okay. Um, so the next movie is 1972's *The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie*. Um, it is his only Oscar um, win um, in his career for best foreign film uh, of that year. Uh, it stars Fernando Rey, Delphine Serig, Stefan Audrun and Jean-Pierre Casal, and it has a 98% from critics and an 89% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us, yeah, this has a bit more of a narrative than Phantom of Liberty, but uh, so you want to go ahead and tell us about this film a little bit, but it also has those absurdist qualities. So, this movie is inherently a movie about people trying to eat dinner together and never succeeding. Like, that's ultimately, like, the narrative of this movie. But the real, like, crux of the movie is about the frivolous and disposable nature, I guess, of the comfortable and wealthy and how 
people who are so self-important can become blind to like the reality of what's actually happening around them maybe or not even blind to it but just so callously unconcerned for the needs and lives of others maybe does that make sense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because it's it's this group of six people these three couples um who are continuously trying to like get together and have in, in some combination, it's not always all six of them, but in some combination trying to get together and have this dinner that maybe was never supposed to happen in the first place. Right. Because no one pays attention to what anyone else is saying. They only care about what they need to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they're continuously in the wrong place at the wrong time or missing each other or some circumstances occurring that's interrupting, you know, they're taking exception to the fact that there's a wake being held in their restaurant and like, well, I can't eat here because it's whatever. Um, Intermingled with people with vivid dream sequences where people are describing things that they've dreamed in really graphic detail, which Boonewell shows, you know, through like interrupting the narrative portion to show these dream sequences. Um, I think there's a lot of condemnation of the corruptibility of people in positions of political authority. Um, especially people that have the ability to kind of circumvent the laws that are forced upon like the common common folk. Um, that's the thing that I think like to kind of speak to your idea of like his possible like socialist leanings. Like I think that that's something that he really despises the idea of like the wealthy being able to basically make their own rules just because they have money. Um, specifically the Fernando Ray character in this story um, or in this movie, who's helping to import cocaine through his status as, what is he, an ambassador, I guess, or he works uh, in the ambassador's he, office? No, he, he's, he's an ambassador for a South American country. I mean, um, it's, it's, um, it's not a real country. But. Do you know what, do you remember what country it is? It's not Miranda. Is it? It's Miranda. Yeah. And he loves, so Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. So we'll talk about that in the next movie, too, because uh-huh. I was actually thinking about that. I watched those movies relatively back-to-back. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, like, I watched one, and then, like, the next time I watched a Boonewell movie, it was the other one. I watched him again. Um, like, he's has these... Um, insurgents or whatever protesters that are kind of following him um, and he's just like shoots at the one outside the window to get rid of her um, with a rifle and like that's okay and I don't know it's just I, I think there's a lot of disdain on Buñuel's part for the idea of this these people who are just wealthy and continuously wealthy and feel like they can control the lives of others through their wealth Right. And I think that he is gently 
satirizing maybe the empty and disposable nature of their lives in that they're not really ever doing anything important and they're continuously misreading situations based on their own sense of overinflated sense of self-worth. Like one of the funniest sequences in the movie is uh, maybe like a third of the way through um, when they're attempting to have the third aborted attempt to have this, this dinner together. Um, and the two couples go to the country house of the third couple. The third couple decide that they absolutely have to have sex at that point in time. Right. But can't do it in the house because they don't want anyone to hear them. So they flee into the woods to have sex. But then Fernando Ray feels like the police are going to come get him because of this cocaine thing. So they flee thinking that the police are coming while the other couple's having sex. It's just, it's so absurd. And then the bishop comes, but he dresses up like a gardener and nobody wants him in the house if he's a gardener. But then as soon as he like puts his bishop robes back on, like he's fine. Like, oh, he can, I don't know. Well, there's, then there's a the whole thing with the bishop and his parents being killed and there, there, there's so much there, and there, that, that's that anti-church stuff that like creeps in, and the, those kind of things. I mean, but, um, and the privilege there too of 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 the priest that he can just choose to become a gardener, right? You know, I mean, um, it's there, yeah. There's a lot in here as well. Um, that's that's really funny. I think this is a. I think this is a funnier movie than Phantom of Liberty, probably. Um, it's almost there's almost elements of like a horror movie in it too, though. If yes. you think about it, like, and I wonder. So, this movie is what year? Seventy-seven. Seven? No, seventy-two. I wonder if he had seen much Baba, because they were they were. Film, they were making films concurrently with each other. Mm-hmm. There's the there's the dream of the young soldier about um, the mother's like kind of like disembodied hand coming out of the um, wardrobe and like showing him that the man that he thought was his father is actually um, this unknown stepfather, and then his father's like sitting there with his face half blown off, mm-hmm. which is pretty graphic, you know, mm-hmm. for being like. Because he's not much of one of, well, that's not true. Like he never shied away from showing that, but he, you know, he doesn't really focus on violence in his movies. So it's kind of like shocking when it happens. And then there's some really kind of horrific elements to the um, the second soldier's dream, where he's in the um, the empty street. Like it's not like overt horror in terms of like whatever but it just has like a very ghostly ambiance to it i don't yeah. i'm just curious if Buñuel. my my very brief um quick research here on google shows nothing of them popping up kind of together in anything like but that obviously doesn't mean anything doesn't mean because he's back in spain primarily by this point um you know so he could certainly have they could have certainly have known each other and if it wouldn't surprise me if he's watching film all the time i mean then you will i mean 
but but yeah, I um yeah, I thought this was again an interesting movie. Like, um, it's kind of all over the place. I think there's some things I definitely can't get because it's very specific culturally at times. Yeah. Um, in this movie. Um, so, go ahead. Go ahead. No. I was going to say, I, I think a good companion piece to watch with this movie, because I feel like it helped me having watched it recently, and you, you've watched it not that long ago yourself, is um, Day of the Jackal. Um, I think the kind of understanding, like, that climate of whatever you want to call it, like, what do they call it, Vichy French, France or whatever. Right. Um, like, that climate in France where there's still the semblance of nationalism, like you have, um, what's his name, is uh, Chancellor, what's his name? Um, Neville? No, 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 the guy that in Day of the Jackal they're going to assassinate, I can't remember his name. Oh. Um, yeah. And then watch something kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the Battle of Algiers, um, which is a really interesting take on like, French colonialism from the other side. No, oh, De Gaulle, you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, Charles De Gaulle. Thank you. Um, I think there's some really fascinating stuff in just Buñuel's apparent love for or apparent disdain for how France has so haughtily treated people that they pretended to rule. You know, like pretended to colonize and I think he's a very I think maybe being like as worldly of a guy as he is he's very anti-colonialism um and that really like I'm whether or not you choose to believe it's like a dream or a act or whatever um especially because the end of this movie certainly gives you several interpretations I think that you can think about what you've been watching right um I think he definitely lays the blame for the violence that happened in France and just the general poor treatment of people who were, you know, had immigrated to that country um, because France had sort of like taken over their countries or like at least whatever, like had huge influence on them. I think he's very pro-immigrant and very pro, um, like has a lot of solidarity for, you know, the serving class, like the ruled class or whatever. Right. Um, and very little sympathy yeah, I um, agree. At, at best, I think he has like a sly mockery of, and at worst, I think he has like outright disdain for like the bourgeois ruling class mm-hmm. that existed in France. Oh, uh, yeah. But all yeah. like all of these movies, I feel like they touch on that. Um, maybe not the number one movie as much, but definitely two through five. I think touch on that at least in a small way, and some of them like in their entirety. So. Yeah, the number one movie's targets are set solely on the church. Um, I think in that movie, but um, but yes, I think all of these movies have something in terms of the the bourgeois, um, you know, that's being targeted um, in them. Let me ask you this question. I guess this is the right time to bring it up since we don't have any more kind of like absurdist, like surrealist movies on here. I'm interested in your idea of. It feels to me that like absurdists are often 
not respected very much until much later in their like almost like after they're dead a lot of times but it going my research it feels like Buñuel was accept his absurdism was accepted during the time like contemporaneously and would you have any thoughts on like why that would be that it was he, he was accepted during his life where a lot of absurdists they need to be 20 years down the road because a lot of times absurdism and surrealism I don't think like the things they're talking about are part of the culture until later, maybe, you know, um, that they're usually honestly surrealism and progressivism are, or socialism are kind of like linked together in some ways, a lot of times, um, because they're trying to be subversive. And this is a guy who's like subversive, I think, and a surrealist, but like Phantom of Liberty and discreet charm and Belle de Jour and the next movie that we're going to talk about, like, you know, which will kind of act as a transition are all highly respected contemporaneously. And do you have any idea like why that would be that he's so respected during his time when so many, it takes years before that happens. Um, because all of his surrealism and absurdity is grounded in reality. He's not, he's not ever so far so again, like one of the points I made early on is I think there's a lot of very pointed modern criticism that's happening in his films, where if you're existing in that culture at the time, you would understand those critiques, like it would make sense to you. And I think that because there's not the, the fan, anything fanciful in his movies is still has a very strong element of the real to it. It's just, it's it's probably the best, truest definition of surreal in the sense that it's just off enough where like it makes you, it moves you outside of a standard comfort zone, but it still is interpretable and understandable like from an audience perspective. And he's also making movies in France during the heyday of, you know, the French new wave movement. So there's a lot of, attention that's given to him through Khan, through, you know, Cahiers Ka- Ka- Cinema, like, that would, I don't know, like, increase his cachet in term, in, like, the world in terms of, like, film critics and whatever. Whereas you look at somebody like Jodorowsky, who's almost making movies in a vacuum sometimes, and whose absurdity is so absurd that it, like, borders on the obscene sometimes, you know what I mean? Like, you look at, like, Holy Mountain or El Topo, and those movies were still respected in their time, but they didn't have the cachet that Buñuel's name carried, I think. Well, right, because he's 65 to 75 years old, right. like, when I these mean, are coming out. people already knew him. Like, people knew his relationship with Dali, like, you know. Sure, and and just to, to kind of drive that point home... Um, because I was just like reviewing, like as you were talking earlier, like the the Wikipedia page, and he doesn't go. And, he, and I didn't read this earlier; I hadn't seen it or just skipped over it. During this time period, he goes to America to um, do press for this movie. Yeah, and um, George Kakar like invites him to lunch, 
And at lunch is him and Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder and George Stevens and John Ford and William Wyler and Robert Weiss. Like, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that fucking lunch? Like, you know, with those like filming, like, I mean, like, yeah. So it's like, yeah, he's known. <laughs> like he, he has cred at that point. Like, you the other know, thing too is like, again, like I, like Yodorowsky is one of the main ones for me, but there's other people too. There's like Jose Marin's Mo, Moica or whatever his name is from Brazil, who's just kind of making like indie movies. Like he's not making, you know, wide released films. He's making these little like low budget things. Like that's one of the things too with surrealists is a lot of times they're not making movies that you're going to see outside of like a grindhouse. Like, they don't get found until later in life. I mean, Cronenberg, you know, was making B-horror movies for the most part. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. you see a lot of recognition of his talent, like, later. Right. But it's not like he was considered this visionary. I mean, he was in some respects, but, like, Buñuel was considered, like, a master filmmaker when right. he was film. So it would be right. like today, right. even when Tarantino releases something that like we don't like that much like everyone talks about that movie sure but there's going to be at least a few people that are making movies today that you're not going to talk about for another like you know 20 or 30 years Mm -hmm. where it's like oh well let's go back and look at the works of whatever x person who kind of labored in obscurity and just made these like great films that weren't widely acknowledged at the time right but Buñuel at the time was would have been a name like Truffaut or Godard or Fellini. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, these were the people Bergman, Kurosawa. Like these were the names that were like known. Yeah. Like those movies came out in American theaters. Those movies were screened for international audiences and had international acclaim. And you know, Holy Mountain wasn't like playing at Man's Chinese Theater. Or you know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I got you. Maybe I don't. I mean, I'm just I'm I'm talking like half of stuff that I know, and I'm kind of half talking out of my ass too. I'm just trying to like kind of make assumptions based on your question, but mm-hmm. I, I I think that a lot of that's probably right. Yeah. So. That's all I was asking for was your truth. <laughs> um, no, that makes perfect sense. Um. I don't think there's anything else I want to ask you here. Um, all right. Anything that you wanted to say about this movie to wrap up? Honestly, I think this is probably, if, if you know a Buñuel movie, it's probably this one. So, Well, interestingly, it's the only one that was on Prime. Everything else was oh, on Criterion. It's also probably the one that, uh, like, if you've seen... Uh, images from a movie you've probably seen images from this movie right that right. and the people on the toilets from um phantom of liberty i think those sure are- sure yeah yeah no all right um number two on your list is 1977 this is Buñuel's last movie uh that uh that obscure object of desire it stars again fernando ray carol bouquet Angela Molina and Andre Weber. 
It is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 90% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about this one and why you have it at number two? Uh, so this is an absolutely brilliant examination of some themes that we talked about a little bit during uh, Bel de Jour. Yeah. Um, Fernando Ray is a wealthy businessman, um, member of like the Parisian, um, like noble hierarchy kind of, um, falls in quote unquote love with this, uh, well, okay. So the movie is framed kind of on Fernando Ray being on this train and talking to these people that are in his train car with him. Um, one of whom is a psychiatrist. Um, there's a, a bourgeois like woman and her child, um, a man who's also like involved in the French government or whatever, um, telling the story about this, this young immigrant woman from Miranda again, this fictitious um, Latin American country. Um, that he has fallen in love with, that basically he has fallen in lust with that refuses to consummate their relationship on a physical level. Um, she's played by, um, her name's Conchita. Um, she's played by two different women. Um, uh, Carol Bouquet, who's a more classic, um, thin, waifish uh, French beauty. And um, Angela Molina, who's more of a um, heavy-lidded, dark-eyed, like full-lipped, like Hispanic beauty. Um, they both kind of represent, each of them represents sort of like a different, very complex series of emotional responses that this one character has to the Fernando Rey character. Um, I think it's pretty early on where you're given the impression that he's mostly just interested in betting her as a conquest. And he views his investment in like buying her things and giving money to her mother and whatever as um, his investment in like his right to, to have sex with her. Um, but she continuously, I wouldn't say leads him on, but definitely gives him the impression they're going to have sex and then sort of like shuts him down um, to the point where eventually he becomes violent. Um, there's a couple of, uh, couple of scenes where she openly mocks like his frustration and sort of calls into question like, well, if you loved me, you would wait. Or, you know, the only thing I'm asking you is that we can't have sex. Like I give you my body except for everything, but you know, like, I'm not going to let you have sex with me. Like, isn't that enough? Sort of um, almost like turning his own words against him because he's definitely trying to use honeyed words to get into her pants. Mm -hmm. um, he eventually uses his influence to have her and her mother deported um, back to uh, Seville in Spain and then sort of follows her there, like stalks her there. Um, there's a lot of things that Buñuel films them with a very critical eye and is definitely not condoning um, 
men using their position to force themselves on women or rape or assault. But it's it's definitely a lot less comfortable now in like our current um, current world climate to see like a main character treating a woman like that, um, especially you know she um, she turns him down at one point after he buys her a house and then she pretends to come back to him but then he beats her up and um, ultimately in the end they've sort of reconciled but maybe not reconciled and then a bomb that's presumably set by one of the insurgents that's in the country um explodes and i think you're led to assume kills them both but the metaphor there is kind of that the contemptuous and um incendiary nature of their relationship would eventually lead to like it's 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 ultimately destructive yes um but a really, really so number one, one of the things that I think is absolutely brilliant in the movie is the use of the two actresses to play um Conchita, especially in the sense that he has no compunction about sometimes changing them mid-scene. And it's this brilliant visual narrative cue where like you learn more than he knows as the main character, like you learn what to expect when one of them is on the screen. Like, you know, like kind of what's coming. Um, and not that he ever makes either, either one of the actresses, whatever, like a cutout or a, um, like one dimensional, but it still is, um, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing to watch. And they're both fantastic in the role. Um, and I didn't say this enough, I don't think in the last one, but Fernando Ray is just one of the most physically captivating men I think I've ever watched on in a film. The, like the mixture of sort of base humanity and regal bearing kind of in him and the way that he can sort of move himself between like controlled and suave and desperate and menacing and sometimes in the span of like a sentence i don't know yeah we talked about um, just this very briefly very briefly last night but like i said it like it's like we had this happens sometimes on our on our episodes where it's like we we're talking about one thing but we also like end up finding like another thing and it's like fernando ray's been one of the revelations to me watching these movies is just how good he really is and how versatile he really is um in different roles like he has a very subtle comedy to him he can be menacing he can but it's everything's very human about him you know he can be very charming like you know it's like he's he's very he's very versatile in what he can do but it's always steeped in a um a very noticeable like humanity and like you you're right i didn't think about that but it's very physical like yeah so it's interesting because to me the real the real question of this movie is is she justified in her treatment of him Agreed. because ultimately all he wants is to have sex with her mm-hmm. and she recognizes it and she refuses to give into it but she uses his desire to bed her to basically extort him yes 
but it's a willing extortion because he thinks that the ultimate the ultimate prize is going to be to take her virginity which she may or may not even have um so it's again like it's it's another interesting look at the dynamics in a the relationships between men and women and it's something that happens to this day you know i mean like there's plenty of people i think that still you know look for sugar daddies or sugar babies however you want to look at it and mm-hmm. plenty of men that use you know their material wealth to try and sort of have like trophy wives or trophy girlfriends or you know have somebody on their arm that makes them look and feel younger and whatever and it doesn't make him a villain i mean i think the only time that he really stoops to villainy is when he becomes physically abusive towards her oh absolutely at the end of the movie and i don't even i I don't think that buñuel films that in a way that makes you think that it's justified at all right um but yeah like i just i i i think the performance of the three um principles is fantastic in it um, I love the framing device of um, Fernando Ray almost being an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. in the sense that everything you're seeing up until the end of this movie is being told from his perspective as a flashback, as like a a story to try and elicit sympathy and um, compassion and get a laugh out of these people that he's sharing a train compartment with. So, Right. Like... Right, because, yeah, he starts it, right? One, I'm sure you want to know why I just dumped water, dumped on, water on this woman. Right, right. yeah. Um, if it hadn't have been for the number one movie, it's like, yeah, like, this, this was the one that I watched, and I was like, okay, this is... I, I finished it, and I was like, this is, this is a masterpiece. Like, you know, I liked all of these movies. To one degree or another but this was the one that was like okay this is there's there's something here that like actually has question marks after it that i don't know if can ever be answered but is still so damn engaging throughout that it's like it's something you could watch i think every and i think that's ultimately what i'm looking for a lot of times i've said this about bergman too we, we did bergman sorry <laughs> uh, I forgot about Bergman as well last year, which is one of our top episodes, actually. But um, Bergman, I say this about, is like Bergman makes movies that I could rewatch every 10 years and take something completely different away from it, depending on where I am in my life. And this this movie here, I think, and I think Del De Jour probably, like both kind of hit that level. Um, and like I knew it like immediately when I finished watching it. Your your question is exactly the right question. Of course he's gross. It's like what is her, her level of culpability in any of this movie is the right. question. And I just view it ultimately as it's almost like um we talked about bad timing not long ago. Um it almost like predates by a few years bad timing in the sense of like what a truly toxic relationship looks like agreed um 
because I don't, I mean, it gets into like a little bit of like Me Too stuff a little bit about using power and privilege to try to woo, and I put that in quotation marks, or, you know, basically like, you know, get this woman to, to sleep with him. Um, it certainly delves into all that, but um, but more more so than even that, I think this is the the absolute um, epitome of a toxic relationship, and I think that's what the end result of this movie is with the terrorist act and the explosion and all that kind of stuff is showing like what how toxic it really is. Like one of the other really interesting things about this movie is it's again his. Buñuel's view of sex work mm-hmm. in the sense that Fernando Ray is basically treating her like a prostitute in a way. It's mm-hmm. just like a really long con prostitution where he's paying for everything for her. Like ultimately, like he starts the relationship by slipping her money when there's no reason for him to just to show her that he has money because he's trying to have sex with her but becomes infuriated when he sees her dancing naked for a group of men. Right. Even though that's right. really no different than how he's been treating her the entire time. Mm-hmm. And her response is basically like, it's my body. I can do what I want. With it. Uh-huh. Like you don't own my body. You can't tell me no, that I can't do this thing because this is how I live. And it's yeah. just, it's a really interesting progressive way that, because I feel like as much as I love like Goddard um, in particular, I, I feel like he's got a very, I don't know if antiquated is the right word, but he definitely does not have as progressive a look at like sex in a relationship. And I think that Buñuel like realizes that, you know, no man has the right to tell a woman what she can or can't do with her body. Like it's her right to make that, that decision. Right. Um, I think that maybe he's personally not a hundred percent comfortable with like some, some of those choices, but I also don't think that he feels like he has the right to tell them they can't make them. So, right. And it's like that, that's the premise of this movie is that this dude's fucked up for thinking he has that right. But the actual exploration of this movie is like, okay, he doesn't have that right. Now, how does the woman deal with it? And it's like, it's so progressive for the time period in the, re- in, in the idea of recognizing that the man doesn't have that right. And he's asking in 1977. Yeah. Okay. Granted, true. Now, now what about this? And that is fascinating to be doing that that long ago. You know what else I find interesting? Is it in this movie or is it? It's in, it's in the next movie. Booneywell's use of music is really interesting. And I, I wish I knew a little more about contemporary French pop music or contemporary French jazz. Like, I wish I knew more about music during this time period because... Buñuel is very much interested in like classical music. Like he likes Mm -hmm. Brahms and Handel and whatever, but he also doesn't mind using like modern songs. Mm -hmm. And I'm always just kind of curious about like when he, like in in this movie in particular, you get a lot of um, flamenco style music Mm -hmm. because that's um, Conchita's backdrop is that she's a flamenco dancer. Right. Um, 
And it's like you don't get much ambient music in Buñuel movies. Like it's usually just the the ambient sounds of the world is like his music, his use of like score. Except like when he does put score in there, I think there's a really great purpose to it. I don't know. Like again, I wish I knew more about like what was being sung and right his choices because I think that that's also something that carries a lot of weight. Just because he's so deliberate in his use of it so yeah you know what's fascinating too uh, as, a, as a little piece of trivia because we're getting ready to move out of the 70s um discreet charm in 72 that i read is his first use of playback ever on the set so so discreet phantom and this movie are the only ones throughout his entire career that he used a playback system to see what he just shot. And, 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 and reading that, like, it's like, I, I knew that, like, I didn't know that, that there was a time where that didn't happen, but it's like, we think about like filmmaking now and like, you know, because of like growing up with all these movies where directors are sitting there watching back, you know, what they just shot or watching the dailies or whatever, like, that didn't exist at one point. And it's like he he still wouldn't be able to see his dailies, right? He just would have had to watch it after the fact. After the fact, right. Yeah. They didn't have that playback system, right? Um, but it's like but he had to be convinced to use it. I wonder how much he ever went back and reshot anything because he's pretty brilliant. Like he's um yeah. there's a lot of ways that he films things in this movie to show the divide between this older wealthy man and this younger free-spirited and possibly duplicitous young woman. Um, him looking at her through windows and in mirrors and with things separating them like rooms and doors. And it's just these constant small reminders. That there's this, this gap <clears throat> between them and both, I don't know, like supposed breeding and age and culture, and then he's a he's a really impressive guy when it comes to um his filmmaking techniques. Yeah, so so he gets compared a lot by critics to um, Hitchcock, and one of the reasons that he does get compared to Hitchcock so often is because he um he doesn't waste shots, you know, as they say. So he very often, like everything he shoots, he uses in some way because he's already had, you know, like famously about Hitchcock and storyboarding and stuff like that. Um, he very much was the same way, except for he apparently he didn't storyboard. It was all up in his head. Um, and so like he knew exactly going in what he wanted to shoot like that day and like rarely wasted shots. That's pretty um, interesting. Yeah, and and just in terms of like um you asking about the music is like I know from my reading that he um he really disliked um music that like Bledsoe talks about this all he always talked about this like our entire life like kind of like off and on but it's like he really disliked music that kind of fit the scene too well like so he disliked things that like fit the internal life of the character 
like he didn't want music to ever like represent anything in terms of the character and their right. internal life because that's not real like that's not the way the world works like you know um so it was everything would have been external in some way so it's either it's what i'm saying is it doesn't mean that it's not meaningful it means that it's meaningful not to the character but it's me it could be meaningful to the message of the movie or whatever he's trying to send to right. you as a viewer it's it's not a subconscious or metaphorical meaning to what you're supposed to know about the character it's a very base reference to the character's preferences and likes and dislikes yes since we're getting ready to move into this next movie anyway right there, and uh, right right as soon as you there's a, Honda, scene like, this oh, next, right. a scene in this next movie where there's a song playing and you almost forget that the song is actually part of the scene until someone violently rips the needle off of a record and it stops mm-hmm and all music stops in the scene and you realize, holy shit, like that was just ambient music in the scene that was occurring. Right. Let's talk about the next one. <laughs> okay. Um, so number one on your list is a movie we talked about. Feels like ages ago. Um, Vera Diana, it is from 1961. It stars Sylvia Pinal, Francisco Larabal, Fernando Rey. It has a 96% from critics, a 90% from audiences. Um, you want to remind us a little bit about this movie and why it's number one on your list? Um, so, yeah, so we, we talked about this during the top five Palm Door winners. Um, Viridiana is a um, novice nun uh, who is on the precipice of taking her um, vows of celibacy. Um, she's invited to stay with her uncle, who's a landowner, um, widowed landowner. <clears throat> the nuns basically convince her, like, this is a good idea. You need to be with your family. Go see him. He falls in love with her because she looks like her dead aunt. Um, so he does these machinations to keep her on the keep her on his farm, um, including drugging her and lying to her that they had sex. Um, so she'll give up her vows. Um, ultimately, it doesn't work and she leaves and he kills himself and she comes back. She's brought back by authorities and then sort of stays out of a feeling of, I guess, a combination of like guilt and just compassion. Um, so she tries to turn the farm into this commune for the homeless. Um, people that live like in the town around the farm. At the same time, um, Fernando Ray, who plays the uncle's illegitimate son, um, is bequeathed the property and moves in with his girlfriend. Um, he also falls in love with Vera Deanna. And then a bunch of shit happens. It's a lot of like, not very thinly veiled biblical references and critiques of I think in a lot of ways critiques of the ideas of altruism maybe in that through your force of will like through your goodness and your desire to make someone better that you can make someone better that sometimes people just are what they are 
Yes. And sometimes, like, base humanity is just base humanity. Like, there's no holy reflection to cast it against. It's just sort of there. Right. Your, chari- um, your charity can be misplaced. Right. And then it ends with what is possibly the implication that um, Vera Diana and um, Ramona, the woman who is like the long-term mm, maid? Governess maid yeah. of the property right. is having a threesome with the um, illegitimate son. Absolutely. That's like the, the Viridiana, Absolutely, that's the implication. Yeah. Viridiana has fallen so far from this because her 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 piety is never really tested by sin. Her piety is just a thing that she thinks that she has, and it makes her like haughty in the way that she approaches people. And not to say that as a character she's condescending or like not appealing. Like she's she's a good, well written character throughout the movie, but it's mm-hmm. like. Um, what is that line? Like virtue without sin. I can't fucking remember that Do line. You mean, you know like, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Um what when yeah, what is it? Like um virtue without sin is not real virtue. That virtue and no virtue and vice it is. Like right, you know, you like to, yeah. You have to slam virtue right. against vice to see if it maintains. Right, yeah. And that's so, what yeah. it is, is that she just she Frank has Pimble, this idea Frank Pimbleton says that in homicide, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That she wants to be a she wants to be a nun. She wants to love God, but she's right. never really been tested. And it's like mm-hmm. her first test, her first true test, which is going to live with this um You know, going to live with this uncle that she's never known in her life and live among these people who are like lower. Like she comes out and just, you know, she abandons the white frocks and she abandons the Mother Teresa look. And all of a sudden she's just, you know, wearing a blouse and listening to pop music and shuffling the deck, quote unquote, right. with her cousin. So, right. yeah. Um, Again, we've we've already talked about this movie, but it's mm-hmm. been a long time, so I think it's it's good to kind of like reflect back on it a second time. I agree. Um, one of the most visually perfect movies I've ever seen. Um, the way that he films this movie is every shot makes absolute sense and feels impactful and important. Um, and even when he kind of slips into, I don't want to call it fourth wall breaking, but like, it's, it's close to that. Like, you know, all the, so at one point the homeless that she's brought up and like sort of tried to force into this commune living, these people who are fornicators and alcoholics and blasphemers, and she's kind of put them to work in this, um, like farm environment and they all go away like all the masters of the house leave and so all the the hobos come inside just to you know ostensibly like take a look around and then they get drunk and then they get in fights and they're destroying property and they're having sex in the you know the, the parlor and 
when she comes back, she almost gets raped by a couple of them. And the only way that she gets freed is the one gets bribed to murder the other. And it's like, there's this one scene in the midst of all of it where all the homeless are sitting at a table and they freeze frame enact the um, Last Supper uh-huh. painting. Uh-huh. And it's like just this really like perfect subtle yet not so subtle dig at at organized religion and Catholicism and even maybe the idea of like the meek shall inherit the earth kind of because they've definitely shown themselves not to be terrible people but just to be people right like they're not you know these maybe somewhat maybe somewhat vulgar people Right, because but, think about like what because the fo- no photo gets snapped, what actually happens? Right, they're pretending to. Well, they're pretending, and the woman fucking lifts her fucking dress oh, up. Yeah, right, like, right, right. <laughs> that's, I'm trying to that's remember. The like, sna- that's the snap of the photo, really, when it uh, when it comes down to it. Like, because they're all just having a good time. Like they they can't afford alcohol, so here's all mm-hmm. this free like wine and spirits at their disposal, and right. Again, they're they take her up on the offer because it gives them a place to sleep and it gives them food to eat, but it's not because they're truly like these. I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example. It's like maybe maybe Pearl Bucks the Gooder is a good analogy in the idea of like the wealthy have this idea that people who labor for a living have these like good plain souls that they're just, you know, like that, the godliness you find in humility or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they're just the same as everybody else are just people like, and they all have their own likes and dislikes and vices and, you know, pros and cons and whatever. And it's just, they don't have the ability to exercise them in the same way that the wealthy do. And Vera Deanna, because she's privileged, has the privilege to be pious and holy. And it's like when that privilege starts to get removed through the actions of others, it's like when you really find out what the true metal of her character is. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not that she's a bad person. It's just that she's just a person. Right. Like she's not a saint. She's not a, you know, like a holy woman. She's just a human being like everybody else. And I think that's like ultimately Buñuel's point is that you can't um, you know you can't have like perfect piety or whatever you want to call it to quote um, Cannibal Ox or whatever. Right. Like there's got to be like humanity mixed with whatever like the vice and the the base nature of like a human of a human being has to mix with like that holiness and I don't know. Well, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like the, the, the mother superior doesn't care why Vera Deanna wants to stay. The mother superior is more offended by the fact that Vera Deanna doesn't want to confess her sins, you know, like that's right. That's the right. thing. It's not so much that she's giving up, entering the convent it's that you're not acknowledging 
acknowledging my right to know why you're not entering the convent. Right. I don't know. I wonder if Buñuel and Jodorowsky knew each other at all. Because Jodorowsky is very critical of the Catholic Church too. And yeah, I don't. I, I'm that. I'm not sure of. Buñuel is a lot more subtle about it because he's not like nearly as antagonistic. But there right. definitely is some like you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, the crucifix as a knife is kind of antagonistic. <laughs> yeah, the like, burning of the crown of thorns too. Right. I. The burning of a crown of thorns as the absolute visual metaphor for her just like giving up her virginity and right. giving up her adherence to any sort of idea of like Yeah, I don't think and, Yeah, I, I don't think I I think you're exactly right. I don't think the beggars are like bad or evil. Like I think they represent base human pleasure. Like or the possibility, maybe of base right. human pleasure. Like not not even the the absolute base human pleasure. Like the, the possibility that human nature will at times turn to pleasure, and that pleasure can turn dark and violent and ugly as a consequence of pleasure at times. Um, and I think that's all all that is um but she's denying that is that she's denying pleasure itself um it's a, it's a statement on her i think to some degree in the sense because she's being so pious that she's there's some part of her humanity that's not there because she denies pleasure like she thinks that she can take these people that are basically at their core pleasure-loving people and completely turn them into these productive citizens of good deeds as an extension of herself because she's all about good deeds. Um, and I think that this whole movie is like the kind of an upending of her to a large regard. Um well, again, because she's been able to live in the vacuum of privilege right? where she's never had to consider not being a nun, right? Mm -hmm. And even when she haughtily is giving up entering the convent, she still is going to behave in that manner by crafting these people into what she thinks of them as being, which again is like, you know, it's 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 the meat. Right. Inheriting the earth. Like it's the 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 good rough soul of the the worker, basically, is like what she's hoping to save without like even bothering to recognize that right. any of those people are human. Like it's the same it's why her uncle kills himself basically is because mm -hmm. she refuses to forgive him, more or less. Right. Like, now, is he an asshole for trying to have sex with his niece? Like, sure. oh, of course. Right. Is he a monster for basically trying to, like, rape her at one point? Like, yes, 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But here's a person who's supposedly, an, you know, a bride of Christ, like an adherent to the basic tenets of Christianity. And one of those things is, you know, 
turn the other cheek and like let ye who is without sin cast the first stone and you know she should be forgiving her uncle and giving him that forgiveness and she basically like turns on him and he kills himself so i don't i mean i think there's i i don't think there's any simple answer to any buñuel character as to sure why they are the way they are or how buñuel feels about him I, i think that he's very willing to let someone be a complex multi-dimensional character yeah anyway it, this is my last question for you like that i that i had planned because you uh, there's a there was more but you kind of answered some of them already and it's specifically about this movie but it's not it, it's really the true criticism of buñuel but it specifically comes in this movie but it pops up in a couple others there's this idea that he's criticized for being too dark or too mean about life in the world. Um, this criticism lessens a bit over time, but it's still like always there, but it's specifically there with this movie. Like now I know you've kind of like explained your um my kind of like thoughts a little bit more on this movie of watching it again, but do you think that he's like too dark? Like, do you think this is a dark movie, like a a mean movie? It's only dark. Ultimately, if you think that just living a life as a human being is a negative path to take, you know what I mean? Like ultimately, now the uncle the, the uncle's suicide is dark and the murder of the one vagrant who's trying to rape Vera Deanna, that, that that's also pretty dark but ultimately like she's okay in the end you know she has a life she has her health she just made a choice to not accept celibacy and a life of piety, like she's going to live a life of whatever, like um, secular. Right. You know, she's not going to be like Mother Teresa. But is there anything wrong with like just being a person? You know, like right. I don't think. Yeah. So I said earlier that I thought this was, it's definitely poking its fucking finger in the eye of the church. But like, I don't think it's like, about being an anti like religious movie no. I, I i think it's about being anti thinking you know what's right for people right if anything in a lot of ways it's a very pro pro christian movie in the sense that it is about forgiveness and acceptance and the idea that you know the path to salvation is not wearing the crown of thorns yourself, right? Like, does that make right. sense? Yeah, I understand. What like, it's only when you are willing to throw that your crown of thorns into the fire that you realize that you weren't the one that was meant to be wearing it anyway. Right. It's like, I wonder at the end of this movie, like, as... And look, watching this again, this is the second time I watched it, I'm convinced this is an absolute masterpiece. Like, like one of like the top 
at least 20 movies I've ever watched in my entire life, possibly. Like, because mainly because it's so subversive. Like, how the, how he gets away with some of the shit, like the, the milking of the cow. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he takes such base, human, everyday things and somehow subverts them into something that is a symbol in this movie. So it's like the card playing at the end, the milking of the cow. Like, you know, it's like these, and it's like, it's hilarious. I laughed this time. I might've smiled the first time, but it's like, I laughed this time. Like, just like about almost like how, because I was thinking about the time period and how obscene it must've been for those that like got it and were offended like, um, it just made me. Well, it's the way that Mancho is saying to her. Well, it's the dialogue too, yeah. Right, like, oh, you've never, you've never grabbed one of these. Uh huh. Uh huh. It warms up in your hand. You put right. your hand and you just pull firm. Right, just pull, pull. Right, pull hard. Yeah. Right. It's like you pull hard, and then the little girl, um, Ramona's daughter, is like. Oh, Uncle Jorge is, a, is 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 an expert at it, right? <laughs> uh, which means that she's like this little girl's like because she spies on everybody. Has watched this old man like masturbate before, like probably is like is is the implication behind the analogy that's going on there is hilarious. Like, um, it's like, but there's so much that's going on that's like cross-dressing necrophilia incest like he is like basically like just like directly or subtly like insisting on all these taboos like masturbation like you know right there's so much that's going on in this movie that he gets away with and i know it was censored for um what 20 years in spain or something like that but like there's so much that this dude gets away with in this movie and um but at the same time, I wonder by the end, like, you know, and I know the ending was changed. We talked about this two years ago. Like, the original ending was she goes into the room and the door closes, kind of like the Godfather ending, right? right. Um, she, like, in this case, where it's like now it's like worse because the implication with like shuffling, you know, like uh, playing cards or shuffling the deck is this idea that there's another woman there is now there's this like threesome like i wonder isn't this though maybe like almost like the best case scenario for everybody because he's this like brash capitalist like who just cares about nothing but money and building the property and etc etc she's this woman who's too pious too caring you know and then in between them actually is like this woman who's actually in between them. Yeah, but here's here's the thing about that, right? Like this is the interesting part. Moral and what I mean by that, morally, politically, I think, like, you know, like sure. idealistically, all those kind of things. Like Fernando Ray, the uncle. R- Ramona tries to seduce the uncle, and he wants none of it because no right. matter what, he still is the the landed gentry like he still is the landowner there and she's the servant and he's not going to stoop to like dally with a servant whereas the the cousin the illegitimate son he's like you're beautiful 
you don't have to leave the room. You're not lesser than us. You're staying with us. Right. So in a lot of ways, like he represents that moving away from the traditional, you know, maybe like those traditional Spanish or like, you know, antiquated ideas that whatever you want to call them, like these aristocrats are somehow maybe, better than maybe, maybe, maybe. And, and that that's the thing is this guy who is like young and idealistic and modern and he's listening to jazz like he's not playing Mahler right you know right. on the the stereo or on the um phonograph and he's not like playing the harpsichord he's listening to pop music like on the on the phonograph yeah and, yeah shimmy doll is the is the name of the song i remember right like yeah so it's like he's got this modern outlook and it's like hey like we're no better than anybody else like even right. though I'm the guy that owns this property. It doesn't make me better than, you know, maybe the woman that that sets the table. Yeah. And the interesting thing. So in, in the original ending, it would have been where Ramon is sitting on the bed and the cousin invites her in and she shuts the door with the implication that they're all going to go on the bed. Right. But to your point, like, I think this is actually kind of like much more explicit and much dirtier. I agree. Yeah. Because Ramona goes to leave. She's like, okay, well, Viridiana is obviously more beautiful than me. Like, mm-hmm. my, my cue to exit. And he's like, no, no, you're going to come sit down too. So, like, definitely, you know, metaphorically and literally setting the table for the idea that he wants to have a relationship with both of them. Right. Like, he's at least not adverse to it. And that neither is Ramona and neither is Viridiana. So, yeah. I and watching again, and I I mentioned this the first time, and I've rarely mentioned this like about women in any movies, but like Sylvia Pinal is absolutely fucking gorgeous in this. Yeah. Like, and it's like I'm there's times when I watched her though, and it's like how eerie is it? Chloe Seventy? Like like how closely at times they can could almost morph into one another and i don't find 70 like as like to be like you know like i think she's attractive but i'm not like i don't think she's extremely attractive but it's like there's times though that it's like very strange like how closely the two of those actresses like look to me do you notice that at all like in terms of like seeing the two of them like yeah, I, I I can see it in the eyes and the um, eyebrows specifically, hmm. like the forehead and the eyebrows into the nose. Yeah, and it's the way that um, Pinal like looks up through her, like her knitted brow. Sometimes it reminds that I can see the seventy. Mm-hmm. Um, Pinal actually plays the representation of earthly lust in um, Simon of the Desert. Oh, okay. Um, like she's sent to tempt simon to try and come down off of his um blur. interesting okay um by exposing her, her boobs basically mm. i am um, um, yeah i'm definitely going to watch more yeah Manuel at this point like uh, that whatever i can get exposure to on criterion and stuff like that i know what exterminating angel exterminating i think angel yeah. and robinson caruso are both and, on um, and simon of the desert's on there right yeah you're right simon yeah of the, simon of the desert's on like 45 minutes <clears throat> 
Right, yeah. It's so I, I came close to replacing Phantom of Liberty with three. I, I was going to put Lodge Door, Unshan Andalou, and um, Simon of the Desert because technically the running times, they're kind of make like one movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought Phantom of Liberty would be more interesting to talk about than those three. Right. But yeah, like I think that, I mean, I'm going to watch Robinson Crusoe this week sometime, I think, just to kind of like wrap up anything that's available from him. Um, that I could have seen, but he's a guy where, like, I think he still feels modern and relevant, you know, 40 years past his last film. Um, and I, I, I think he's a guy that like deserves more. And look, Louis Buñuel is hugely respected and like, widely regarded as like a, a master of modern film but I think that they're you know if, if hopefully like people can find him more I think that he's definitely worth like watching and exploring and I think he's very provocative and not in like a crass way but just in a really like intelligent and thought-provoking way like how he films and he's a master of fucking like fil- like his filmmaking is we didn't really talk about how beautiful all these movies are. Right, Man, all, right. Every single one of these movies looks yeah. just amazing. Like, I love the way that every one of these movies looks. Yeah. And I love the very deliberate, but non... Like, it's very deliberate. It's very res- restrained and refined, but it's never plotted, like, the way he paces stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, everything flows into the next thing, and it all makes sense. It's all something you should see. But it never feels rushed and it never feels like heavy handed or over long. Like I think that every one of his movies, you pretty much feel like, yeah, this is this is the length of time this movie should have been. Well, here's Which the thing almost, is everything is between ninety and hundred minutes. Almost. Yeah. Like almost everything. And it's because right. like and you know who else did that? Bergman. Like most things are between like ninety and hundred minutes. Most of the time. Yeah, it really is just like like the the perfect length. And like when you get to the end, you're like, okay, I feel satisfied. Like that's where that movie should have ended. We never are sitting there saying, like, well, you know, if you would have taken 20 minutes out here, it would have been a tighter movie. Right. Right. I agree. Like, and it's like, and that's not me just being who I am that's worried about time and stuff like that a lot of times. Like, you know. And I'm only worried about time, you know, because I watch so many shitty movies just like you have there where it's like I get conscious about time sometimes, you know, like, but it's like, if it's a two and a half hour movies, it's fucking fantastic, like heat or whatever. That's just the first thing that came to mind. It's like something that's really right. long, you know, I don't care. Like, you know, no, it's a good damn movie and it's well paced and like, you know, and it deserves that time, like, you know, most of the time, but it's like, but no, this is like, you know, no, it's just well paced for the 93 to 97 minutes, which is traditionally what these movies are, what what it is. And um, Bergman does the same thing. Hitchcock is largely paced very well a lot of times, like uh, not every time, but largely he's paced really well. Like, you know, it's usually like 100 to 115 minutes with him, but it's like very well paced. And I think that probably comes with directors who already know what they're getting ready to do. Like we talked about, like I mentioned earlier about Hitchcock and um, Buñuel, like about how they plot stuff out. Like it probably comes something like that um, is, is the reason for that. But um, 
No, I hadn't watched any of these movies except for Vera Diana. And um this is one of those this is one of those things where it's like I this is where I really actually enjoy the podcast a lot is because like I feel like a better like a slightly better person for having watched all of these things. Like I feel like I'm I've thought about things like, you know, that um not that I haven't thought about, but it's like I've thought about things more based on the art itself than I might have would have like thought about them. Um and uh that's all I can really ask for out of art, I think in general, is like to try to help make me think more and you know yeah. um you know and, and through that thinking maybe become you know uh hopefully more enlightened better person more thoughtful like you know and i thought all these movies to one degree or another did that and um so yeah so no, i you know some of these movies like it's like i don't know like i can say like i love these movies like but it's like I enjoyed all these movies and I thought they were interesting to watch at their core. Um, this is, which is why I enjoyed them. And like, I don't know what the hell the Phantom of Liberty is about. I don't know what the street charm is really about. Like I can take <clears throat> signs and symbols and pieces of that kind of surrealism or that kind of abstraction and like try to like, but I think there's a joy in that too. Is awesome. I agree. I think he was a man that really loved life and yeah. recognized that even when it was something that was worthy of criticism, that there still was some beauty or, you know, some sublime thing about, like, every element of life. And I think he filmed that way and saw that way. And I think he loved women. And I think he loved exploring you know, the nature of relationships between men and women, and there's just some, um, it's pretty brilliant. So, yeah. I was really happy to watch all five of these movies again, and I'm pretty excited to watch um, Robinson Crusoe. Yeah. No, I was, I, as I was doing my research, I read a little bit more about um, Simon the Desert, and it feels like, even though it's only 45 minutes, something like that, I probably really like a lot. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. It's It's got some, again, it's, it's a lot more surreal and abstract than what you've seen in these movies. Mm -hmm. um, but it's entertaining. Like I, I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, but I also thought, um, what, what do you think about, uh, is it Tristana? What is it? I'm going to have ever seen it. Uh, Tristana, like uh, T R I S T A. Na, I've never seen that one. That's another Fernando Ray one, right? Uh, it's Fernando Ray and Catherine Deneuve. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen it. Um, I don't know if maybe that's available on. Um, I don't know. Yeah, let's see. Uh, 1970, although he first began working on it in '62, like in terms of writing and all this other kind of stuff, and. Um, but it was French investors, so they like requested like this new play, play like the lead role. Um, so yeah, I've never it was nominated for a best foreign language film. Um, but yeah, 
I didn't know. That's that's the only other one like during that time period that like didn't really get mentioned at all. I was got Franco Nero in it too. Oh, right. I wanted to watch The Exterminating Angel because apparently, like, because I, I haven't watched it yet, like, but you probably, you've seen it at some point, but it's like the idea is that apparently it's like there's a little bit of like supernatural type stuff in it, but it's like the dinner party can't leave. And I thought that was a hilarious concept compared to Discreet Charm, where it's like the dinner party is like can never eat. <laughs> like, um, so I always wanted to, I, I wanted to watch that at some point. But yeah, but yeah, no, I thought it was fascinating to watch these movies um, to our audience. I know we went a little long tonight, probably like talking about um, some of these and it was probably like a little bit like a meandering or all over the place. But like, you know, this is a man's career in life. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll go watch some of these as a casual viewer. Um, the things I would say is I would stick first probably with his more linear storylines. Um, and I definitely think, like I said, Vera Diana, I think is a masterpiece in some ways. If you like things that are a little bit like color and like a little bit more current, um, probably that obscure object of desire, um, and Belle de Jour, like, uh, um, I, I think both of those, and then maybe get into some of the more abstract, you know, surreal stuff, but, um, but yeah, no, I was very happy with watching all these. Yeah, they're all really good. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Um, all right. So, uh, off next week, just as a reminder, Week after that, Annihilation and Starfish. And then um, last week of the month, we will be doing top five movies, horror Arm. movies of 1990. Um, so uh, other than that, I hope everybody has a great week. And